Hard Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 10 Reardon Ray made Winnie a high-collared vest out of the conductive material. We put the transceiver in a shoulder holster intended for one of the automatics, strapped the holster underneath the vest, and then covered the whole arrangement with a windbreaker of Ray's that zipped to the chin. It wasn't the most stylish thing she'd ever worn, but the windbreaker hid the bulge from the transceiver and covered the fabric of the RF shield. Ray checked the shield out with a sniffer device of his own, walking towards Winnie from a spot about 30 yards down the street while she waited on the stoop. He held his thumb up as he walked until he got within about three feet of her. Then he shrugged and shook his head. There's a tiny bit of leakage, he told her, but the bad guys would have to be right on top of you to detect it. If someone gets that close to me without figuring it out, they're going to have other things to worry about. What about the decoys? I asked. Done and done. Ray stepped into the trailer and came back a minute later, carrying a pair of metal boxes with toggle switches on the side. All you need to do is flick it in the on position, and you'll be sending out a signal on the same frequency as Winnie's transceiver. They're powered with a single 9-volt battery and should transmit for at least 24 hours before you need to swap it out. How close would you need to be to detect the signal? Half a mile or so. I'm guessing that's about the same range as Winnie's radio. I clapped my hands together. Very good, Q. You've done it again. Q? asked Ray. Winnie laughed. He is like Q. But now he should warn us to take good care of the equipment and harumph about the cost to the British taxpayer. Ray looked back and forth between us. I've no idea what you two are running on about. Never mind, said Winnie. You did good. She smiled, and Ray just about melted into a puddle despite all the tough talk earlier. We should go, I said. It's going to be dark in an hour. All right, said Winnie. You do your motels, and I'll do mine. But if you find them first, you better call me. I will. This is definitely a team effort. Winnie nodded and slipped behind the wheel of her Lincoln, which was parked in front of my galaxy in Ray's driveway. She started the car and backed out, waving to us before she put it in drive and powered down the street. Ray watched her round the corner and then shook his head. I shouldn't have to say this, but be careful, will you? I was nodding before he finished speaking. Yeah, yeah, my turn. Don't answer the door for anyone. Keep the shotgun handy and call the cops if you don't hear from me by midnight. Roger that. Good luck, then. Thanks. I got into the galaxy and muscled it out of the drive and down the street after Winnie. We had made a list of hotels and motels where the winemaker's thugs could be staying, and divided it between us. The idea was to cruise each of them, 
looking for white vans like the other team had been driving. If one of us found a likely van, or ID'd the creeps based on the description Ray had given us, we would alert the other. Then we would put into play the more imaginative part of my plan. Winnie wasn't a terribly big fan of it, but at least it didn't involve torture and murder. Winnie had the longer list of hotels because I had a detour to make before I started. It involved a delivery to a home in a moneyed old neighborhood of Palm Springs called Deepwell, possibly best known as a subdivision where William Holden owned a property. The place I was looking for was on Driftwood Drive, and while it probably wasn't as fancy as Holden's old house, it had to be worth more than 20 times what my trailer would fetch. It was built in a style of architecture I recognized as desert modern. Long and low, with a wide overhang, the front of the boxy building was nearly all glass. The roof was flat and painted white to reflect the heat of the sun, as a lot of roofs in the springs are. But the only architectural detail I really cared about was the stubby brick chimney on the end. That was where I hoped to make my delivery. I parked the Galaxy half a block away in front of another low, bunker-like house that had a line of 50-foot palms guarding the front yard. I spent a minute in the car tying a length of twine to one of Ray's decoy transmitters. Then I sauntered back like I belonged in the neighborhood. Fortunately, there wasn't anyone around to see the act. It was still too hot to be outside unless you had good reason. I couldn't tell if anyone was home at the target house, but I knew for a fact that it had a sophisticated alarm system. I just hoped they hadn't bothered to wire up the roof. When I reached the property line, I stepped onto the well-tended lawn and strode back to an overgrown banana tree by the cinder block fence, dividing the front yard from the back. I bushwhacked my way past banana fronds to the fence and leaped up to grasp the top of it. I wedged my toe into a seam between the blocks and pulled, kicked, and squirmed my way into a sitting position astride the fence. The gutter of the roof was at eye level, just inches away. I reached a hand over to test the temperature of the roof. It was warm, all right, but not warm enough to burn. Bracing myself on the overhang, I got my feet under me and half flopped, half climbed onto the roof. I fell forward as I came, landing on my shoulder with a thud. I lay on the roof looking up at the sky, waiting to hear the front door swing open, followed by steps pounding down the sidewalk as the occupant hurried out to see what had crash-landed on the house. Nobody obliged me. I rolled onto my hands and knees and crawled to the chimney. There was a cap over the opening, but it was an older style without a screen, so there was still a three- or four-inch hole through which I could thread the transmitter. I flicked the switch on, pushed the transmitter through the gap, and lowered it down the chimney by the cord like I was lowering bait down an ice-fishing hole. When I felt the transmitter hit bottom, I pulled it back a few inches and then tied it off on one of the metal posts of the chimney cap. Although the brick of the chimney would reduce the range, Ray had assured me the signal would be detectable to someone standing outside the house with a sniffer. I was crawling back to the edge of the roof when my phone rang. I recognized the number as Winnie's, but I was in no position to talk, and in my panic, couldn't remember how to turn the damn thing off. I shoved it deep into my pants pocket and dangled my foot off the roof, groping for the edge of the cinder block wall as the barely muffled strains of the Jeopardy theme song, my ringtone, filled the air. 
Eventually, I got a toehold and slithered off the roof. Then I hoisted myself over the edge of the wall and dropped back among the banana tree fronds. I quick-stepped it off the property and hurried down the street, counting the cuts, scrapes, and bruises on my hands and arms as I went. As I got close to the galaxy, the phone rang again. This time I punched the answer button. What? I demanded. What do you want? Just calling to coordinate with my partner as agreed, said Winnie. What got up your nose? Sorry. Your first call rang at an inopportune time. I'm not able to take advantage of the feature myself, but I understand people with feeling in their extremities put their phones on vibrate in similar circumstances. I'll keep that in mind. I'd keep it in mind as soon as I could figure out how to do it. Did you drop off the transmitter? I unlocked the galaxy and slumped behind the wheel. Yes, mission accomplished. How about with you? Any luck so far? Winnie chuckled. You could say that. I'm in the parking lot of the Denny's we ate in last night, watching our two smart meter guys ordering dinner from the same waitress. You're kidding. No. How do you know it's them? I started with motels near the airport. I found a white van at a dump called the Painted Sands Inn, and before I could even park the car, these two jokers walked out of adjoining rooms and piled into the van. I followed them to the Denny's, which is about three blocks from the motel. They are exactly as Ray described, a beefy Latino guy and a smaller guy with red hair. Huh, that actually makes sense. They probably picked you up with a sniffer last night when we ate there, and then tracked us back to the complex. That's what I figured. You got a plan? I shoved the key into the ignition and started the galaxy. Yeah. Number one, wait for me. I'm only about three miles away. Number two, call up the Denny's and order takeout. Nobody orders fucking takeout from a Denny's. Sure they do. Try the Tilapio Ranchero. I hear it's good. All right. I see where you're going with this, but hurry the fuck up. On my way. I made the trip from the Deepwell neighborhood to the Denny's in about ten minutes and pulled into a parking spot a few cars down from Winnie's Lincoln. I slunk across to her car and slipped in the passenger door. Winnie watched me settle in with an expression on her face that was half amusement, half poorly suppressed exasperation. I got fries, she said. They take less time. They already brought the order up to the register. Good thinking. Where are the boys sitting? Over there in a booth underneath the clock. The big guy has his back to you, but you can see the redhead chowing down on nachos. I looked at the men Winnie had indicated through Denny's big plate glass window. They were both in dress shirts, and the redhead was wearing glasses with thick black rims. They definitely had the look of ex-military, and from what I could see of them, they seemed to fit Ray's description. Were they carrying anything that looked like a sniffer? The redhead has some kind of man purse he keeps looking into. It could be in that. Guess we'll find out soon enough. So, go in, get the fries, and get out. They won't try anything in a public place, and they are going to have to pay before leaving. That'll give you enough of a head start. That assumes they even notice me. They won't have a good view of the front from where they're sitting, 
and they may not check the sniffer immediately. All right, go ahead and turn on Ray's decoy box now. We'll give him a little early warning. Winnie unzipped the jacket of her windbreaker and flicked the switch on the second of Ray's decoys. Bombs away, she said. You got the address of the house? Already plugged it into the GPS. And before you ask, the shotgun is right here. She patted the friction tape wrap grip of one of the shotguns we'd taken from the duffel bag. I'd cut down the stock and the barrel to make it easier for her to handle, and she had crammed it in the door pocket of the Lincoln. Good, but that's only for plan B. Just like the birth control pill. Only after we're fucked. Uh, right. Okay, here we go. I slipped out of the Lincoln and took a post loitering by the newspaper boxes near the front door. I wanted to be close if I was wrong about the winemaker's employees not getting physical in public. Winnie got out of the car at a more leisurely pace, walked past me without a glance, and went into the Denny's. I watched as she talked to the hostess and pointed at the bag of fries under the heat lamps near the register. The hostess passed them over and rang up the sale. Winnie paid and turned to go out the door. That was when things got interesting. The redhead appeared at the end of the lunch counter, holding a metal box in his hands. He tracked Winnie out the door and then pivoted to go back to his booth. They're coming, I said to Winnie in an undertone as she went by. She didn't acknowledge the comment, but sailed serenely onto her car. She got behind the wheel, backed out, and was well down Palm Canyon Drive, the street in front of Denny's, before the Airzatz Power Company employees made it through the door. I kept my nose in one of the newspaper machines as they went by and waited until they, too, had pulled out into Palm Canyon before I returned to the galaxy. Once I got it started and pointed in the same direction as the other cars, I called Winnie. She answered on the second ring. They are about two minutes behind, I said. Good. How soon before I turn off the box? I'd wait until you are parked. Ray said they can't triangulate directly on your position. They can only tell if the source of the signal is closer or farther. I'm worried that if you cut off your signal too soon, they won't pick up the weaker one at the house. Okay. I'm going to go a little faster then. I don't want them coming up on me in traffic. Just don't get pulled over by a cop. How did I know you were going to say that? We drove with the line open, not speaking for a tense five minutes. Then she broke the silence. I'm here. I'm shutting off the transmitter and I'm getting out of the car. I'll meet you at the corner. I'm on my way. Now I drove faster than I should have through a yellow light at West Ramon and down East Mesquite, the street that led back into the neighborhood. I found Winnie on the corner where we agreed, huddled beneath a Palo Verde whose branches were drooping out into the roadway. As she slid across the bench seat of the galaxy, I reached over to squeeze her arm. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see you too. But you keep forgetting. I can't feel that. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's the thought that counts. She pointed with her chin in the direction of the house where I'd planted the transmitter. What now? The safe way to play it is to go directly to their motel and hope that things develop as planned. Worst case, we'll have a few hours while they're occupied trying to figure out where the signal went. What's the risky way to play it? As if you didn't know. Stake out the house and watch. 
I like the risky approach. I sighed. I pulled the shift indicator back into drive and eased my foot off the brake. It was a few minutes past eight and the sun had already set, so lights would normally be in order, but I left them off as I oozed down the street to the target house. At just about the spot I'd parked on my first visit, we found the white van. Its lights were off too, and nobody appeared to be inside. I swung around and parked on the other side of the street, facing the house. That seems like a good sign, I said. Sure you don't want to get a little closer? Yes, I'm sure I don't want to get any closer. She wrinkled her nose at me. Chicken. 100% leghorn. She looked out the window and snapped her gaze back to me. Let me ask you a question. The whole point of this scheme is to avoid hurting people, right? That's the idea. What about the owner of the house? Or worse, his family? He doesn't have any family. He's, uh, gay. Really? How about a boyfriend? I don't know, but even if he does, I'm hoping the boyfriend is with him tonight. Which is not at the house, apparently. No. He's receiving an award in L.A. for Latino Law Enforcement Officer of the Year. Just about that time, red and blue flashing lights blossomed in the rearview mirror. A pair of patrol cars surged past us without sirens and pulled to a stop in front of the chief's house. Four cops with riot guns jumped out. Winnie wasn't satisfied with the view from the car. She threw open the door and darted partway up the street. I ran after her to tug her by her windbreaker to a slightly less conspicuous location on the sidewalk. We watched as the cops charged the house, made quick work of the front door, and flooded through. Lights snapped on in rapid succession throughout the building, and I heard shouts, but no gunfire. Two more cars materialized at the far end of the block and sealed it off. Officers stood at the back of the vehicles, brandishing more riot guns and talking on microphones. Finally, a familiar figure in a dress shirt and black-rimmed glasses was disgorged from the house, led from behind in handcuffs by one of the cops. His beefier buddy followed next, and both were quickly situated in the back of a patrol car and locked inside. Winnie turned to me. I gotta hand it to you, she said. That was nearly worth the trouble we took to make it happen. You have been listening to No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.